You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Dear Lord, thank you for a powerful message from your word today from John 8. Um, We are reminded that uh, we are in need desperately of your grace. And so we pray that you would flood this room with your grace and mercy. All for your name and glory. Amen. Before I officially get started, uh, a pastor I used to work with um, would often on Father's Days and during announcements make this claim, and I feel like I want to start this way with parents and people thinking about raising kids or on the other side of that or just beginning, Um, especially in light of the sermon today, especially in light of today being the focus on sola gratia by grace alone. Dads, Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient before the Father, which means that all your failures, uh, past, present, and future, are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. And all the ways that you feel adequate, like I do, as a dad or as a mom. Jesus' grace, because of who he is and what he's done on the cross, is for you today. And that, if you receive no other word than that, I want you to receive that today. And maybe some of you need to hear that because you had, a, had an especially bad week. Um, and yeah, so I want to start by a little disclosure. I mean, several months ago, Cameron called me up and said, hey, would you teach this class, and I said, sure, and then I went home and told Abby, hey, uh, Cameron asked me to, that's my wife over there, by the way, and Abby, I said, Cameron asked me to teach this class, she said, oh, what's it on? I said, parenting, and she, without any, without, she burst out laughing, she really did, it, re- it was instantaneous, and I started laughing with her because we both get the joke, uh, and the joke is that I am no expert in teaching anybody about Parenting, and then she and then she said, "Well, what's the angle?" What's it? I said, "Well, uh, I said that the title of the class is going to be Parents as Chief Repenters." And then all of a sudden, she sobered up and said, "Well, you could definitely do that one." And uh, that's that's it. That's what I want to talk about today: about the nature of us being lead repenters in our home and what that might yield for it. I know the previous weeks of this class have focused on kids, and that's even the macro title of this. But I want to focus on the parental relationship to the kids and at least uh, talk a little bit about some of the values that we imperfectly try to uphold in our home as a way of encouraging you all in the well-fought fight with your little kids, with your babies, with your teenagers, with your grown kids, whoever they might be. When I uh, was at a previous church, one of the practices that we ministers do that I'm trying to unfold into our ministry here at the Advent is when people have a baby and request baptism. I want us more often than not to go into your home, invade you a little bit, uh, say hi to the baby, and kind of do a little what, what baptism interview. And it's not a it's not a spotlight on you, but it's more of a conversation about what it means. And one of the things that I loved and continue love to say to parents, in fact, I was just in a hospital with a new baby born into our church this week, and I said this to the parents. Um, I say this, you know, God calls Christians to make disciples. Every last one of us, Jesus says, make disciples. But sometimes, you know, if you're a Christian, you go, I'm not sure who God's brought into my life 
to help me uh, or to teach me or show me to make disciples. I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to disciple. Who am I supposed to lead? Have no doubt that your children are people God has called you to disciple. You must look at them as little disciples in your home who God has said, I pick you in particular to show them the way of Jesus, to show them the gospel and those kinds of things. So really own your children as uh, disciples. And then I say this to them, what makes a Christian home? And I'll unpack this a little bit more, but what I try to say to the parents then is the most important thing about a Christian home isn't about making your kids behave in a Christian manner. It's allowing the gospel to be proclaimed in your actions and in your interactions with them. I'll get there, but first I want to talk about the subtext of this class, as least as at least previous weeks have talked about. Um, and it was this idea that when Cameron originally envisioned this series of classes, one of the things that he wanted to think about was looking at our kids and looking at us through the lens of this Reformation vision called a theology of the cross. Okay, This theology of the cross is something that especially Martin Luther read out of the scriptures afresh in the 16th century. One of Luther's great insights was that the cross changes absolutely everything. It changes the way that we conceive of this world and it changes the way that we conceive of ourselves and relate to our kids as well. And the cross not only becomes a a center of a way of doing theology, which is often how people talk about a theology of the cross. It's like a way, a methodology for thinking about God and thinking about this world as the scripture teaches us, right? It's not only a the center of a way of doing theology, it became a center for a way of doing life. The idea of being theologians of the cross, it sounds, I guess, academic, but Luther meant it the opposite way. It meant that each and every one of us, you and I, in our day-to-day life, in our living, are theologians of the cross or should strive to be. And I confess to you that I'm sold out. I'm sold out to this idea for myself and my life and my ministry. And it's one of the reasons, maybe the principal one, that I felt called to the Advent because the Advent is sold out to this idea too. That cross centrality, the, the, the cross itself reshapes everything. And so I was rereading that great treatise about the theology of the cross, which isn't long. It's by Martin Luther and it was written in 1518 called the Heidelberg Disputation, which is an easy read because it's like little tweets. It's like single points, less than however many characters a tweet is. And it's a bunch of them in order. And Luther was a great wordsmith and, and uh, put together words wonderfully. And one of the things he said there to help tease out what a theologian of glory is versus a theologian of the cross, Luther said, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls a thing what it actually is. A theologian of the cross calls a thing what it actually is. Now, our minds could take that in a bunch of different directions, which may uh, be helpful, but may not necessarily be what Luther meant. What he develops in his Heidelberg Disputation, and this is a way, I promise I'm getting to parenting. Uh, he, He develops... The idea that we need to start church is who he's talking to. He's talking to monks and leaders in the church who are going to debate these ideas. He says, we need to start getting really honest about how twisted sin is in the pursuit of good works. 
how twisted sin is and tangled up in the pursuit of good works because he was living at an era where these distinctions were very confused. And as a result of those very confused distinctions about what good works were and whether we could do them on our own. And that was the prevailing thought of the day is that you can. You grab a little bit of God's help and then you go and you effort your way into doing these great and marvelous works. And he would tell you, that's a theologian of glory talking right there. This sort of spiritual can-do spirit. It's a theologian of glory. And he wanted to set the stage, kind of like what Andrew was talking about with Jesus and the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler said, I'm, I'm doing really well. Like I keep all the commandments, everything about it. And you know what Jesus is calling out in the moment when he says, well, sell all your possessions. He's actually not interested in this man giving all his money to the poor. He's interested in exposing the man's inner theologian of glory who thinks that he can do it on his own and doesn't really need the grace of God, right? And so Luther wants to call this out. Parenting, we should say, is a pursuit of good works. To be a good parent, to raise our children rightly, that's a pursuit of good works. And that means it's not bad. It's not a bad thing. But being parents who are theologians of the cross means that we become painfully honest, ruthlessly honest about how truly sinful our best good works at parenting really are. I'm going to say it again. Being parents who are theologians of the cross means that we become painfully honest about how truly sinful our best good works at parenting really are. We develop an awareness of and we train our radar, my radar, all the ways that our efforts at parenting are irreparably mixed with sin. And we hold that out honestly before ourselves and our children. This is true Christian living. This is a theologian of the cross, parenting. We develop an awareness of and we train our radar for all the ways that our efforts at parenting are irreparably mixed with sin. And we hold that out honestly before ourselves and our kids. The other thing to say about a theology of the cross before I get to applying some things and maybe having a dialogue with you is a theology of the cross tells us that God is doing his work on us. And what that means is that this lens teaches us parenting is not chiefly our work for our kids, but interestingly enough, God's work on us. Parenting isn't chiefly our work for our kids, even though it is, but chiefly, it's God's work on us. I want to introduce a few other concepts just to tease and open up how we need to view ourselves through a theology of the cross. And one of these ideas is called understanding the old Adam or the old Eve that remains in us as Christians, what Paul calls in his epistles, the flesh. The sin, as he says, that remains in our members, in our, that's here. Uh, I'll tell you, this, this old Adam, this old Eve, loves to be a theologian of glory. This old Adam and old Eve loves to look at the things he or she has done for God and loves to glory in them and rest in them and look to them. And you and I have this flesh, this old Adam, this old Eve in us. You know, this old Adam and old Eve don't want their sin 
to be exposed for as bad as it is. And so we come up with a million justifications. In preparation for this class, I was YouTubing that scene in Monty Python's Holy Grail. Okay? And it typifies the behavior of the old Adam. Alright? If you've seen Monty Python's Holy Grail, there's this one part where there's this dark knight and the king wants to pass, but he can't. And this dark knight says, you know, basically over my dead body. And so they engage in a sword fight. And what comically starts happening? The king starts chopping off a limb and another limb. And the king is trying to get the dark knight to realize, like, you've lost the fight. You don't have an arm. You should surrender. And what is his response? It's only a flesh wound, right? That's what he says in response. And he keeps on fighting. And it's kind of, it's sort of 80s style blood spurting, just dumb, you know? But at the end, there's this little stump of a man with no arms and no legs, still claiming, I can beat you. I will bite you to death, right? That's the old Adam that will not yield to God's word that you are dead in your trespasses. You actually, apart from me, have nothing of no value. I'll tell you that that stump of a man, that stump of a woman is in us wanting, craving attention, craving adequacy, and there's nothing else for old Adam to do but be told by God, die. You are dead. That's why we need a liturgy that says things like, Almighty God to you, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Right? Because once we get to that level of honesty about who we are, the old Adam and the old Eve have nowhere to run and hide. When our kids are behaving badly, and when we're getting all tied up in knots, it's always our temptation to say, if I just had a kid who acted in this way, I wouldn't be such a bad parent. That's the old Adam's theology of glory talking, right? Because a theologian of glory is always identifying the problem out there. A theologian of glory is, is always saying, I have a flesh wound, but you have got issues, kid, right? And a theologian of glory isn't willing to identify in the mess of parenting the culpability of our sin in any given moment and any given time, Right? You always want to view the problem as out there. So what then of parenting? I want to give you a vision of the home where a theologian of the cross is thinking about being a parent. A typical Christian vision, and I put Christian in quotes right now, is this. A Christian home is a place where parents and children are behaving morally, where good deeds abound and where sin is at bay. It's not a bad vision, Right? Don't we all want that for our homes? I don't want to wreck my kids. I don't want to behave badly. And I certainly don't want my kids behaving badly. And I'll say that it seems like the vast majority of my efforts in my home with my children is just to keep them in the behavioral boundaries so that, you know, chaos doesn't ensue and we become Lord of the Flies in the Hicks house, right? You don't want that, right? It's not a bad vision. But the question I have about a moral home where good deeds abound and where sin is at bay is what is uniquely Christian about that? What is uniquely Christian about that? Not much. You know why? You know how I know this? Because when Abby and I were living in Denver, for instance, we had uh, a neighbor and they were the most wonderful, godly people. Their son, Aryaman, was best friends with our son, Joel. Uh, they were also not Christians. They were actually very pious Hindus. They were Indian. They beat us morally any day. The words that didn't come out of their mouths were far, far, uh, you know, more controlled. 
right? They were kind. They were more generous with us than we were with them. They were always gracious, always hospitable. And their kids were just, they were better behaved than our kids, right? Um, And they were not Christians. So somehow this vision of a moral home that they had and we were striving to have as well isn't uniquely a, a Christian idea. It doesn't make it a Christian home. So if that if that is not it, where good deeds abound and where sin is at bay, here's a truly Christian vision. A Christian home is a place where sin abounds from every party and therefore where repentance abounds all the more. A Christian home is where sin abounds from every party and therefore where repentance abounds all the more. Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Correcting behavior and upholding virtues and morals should be abandoned by no means, no way. But that should not be held up as the vision of a Christian home. I don't like this sort of language we use when we say, well, that's not a very Christian thing to do, right? Why? Because that's, it's also not a very evidently Hindu thing to do, right? It's not a very Buddhist thing to do or maybe even a very Muslim thing to do when you're not being nice to someone else, right? So that shows no identification of what Christianity is at its core. So maybe what a very Christian thing to do is to learn what it means to place repentance on center stage. And what do I mean by repentance? That's a fancy word, maybe. What I mean is just allowing your home to be a place where cycles of confession and forgiveness become evident where cycles of confession and forgiveness just keep on pouring themselves out. A practice that Abby and I adopted early on when our kids were young, and really we knew we were just training them verbally. They're not getting it theologically or in their heads. But we wanted, when it came time for them to kiss and make up, you know, apologize, you hit your brother, blah, blah, blah. We always wanted, we we did like a little liturgy in there. Um, And it was this, when they apologize, your words in response are to say, I forgive you. Why? Because we need that cycle. We need someone repenting, and then we need a word of grace given to that. We don't need, it's okay, it's all right. It's not all right, it's not okay. The wages of sin is death, right? And I'm not going to say that to my kids and be all like, you're going to the guillotine, son, you know? <laughs> but I do want this, this uh, cycle, this idea that this is a safe place to apologize, and this is a safe place to offer grace all the time. I will tell you, Homes where that abounds, that's a Christian home. That's a Christian home. Where repentance, where sin abounds from every party and where repentance abounds all the more. I want to give you three things uh, that'll be what we can do as parents to place repentance on the front burner in our homes. We can start by aiming at all times to be chief repenters, to model what it looks like to apologize to ask for forgiveness and to receive it graciously, to not cover up our sin, to be honest about it, maybe even to be honest about the mixture of sin and any good deed that we have. Here are three things of many more, and hopefully maybe you'll respond with some that are part of your home or things that are coming to mind. Number one, we can repent of putting our identity in our children rather than in Christ and do that in front of our kids. Okay? I'll tell you where I need to do this a lot is on the field of my kids' flag football playing, okay? (laughs) Why do parents scream and yell and get so intense? Why? Because we're putting our identity in our children. I don't know, maybe it was because you were a football (laughs) failure and they must not be, right? 
Or maybe it was because you were a success and they're looking like a failure and they're making all your previous trophies and laurels look all nasty, right? But either way, that stuff is rising up in you. That you want them to be the best and you don't want them to be an embarrassment because guess what? It's kind of this whole coliseum of parents looking and judging. I mean, do you feel when you're on a, when you're on a field, like a soccer field or a football field or a baseball field, just the undertone of judgment and critique floating around in everybody's minds? Do you feel that intensity there? I mean, it's like I feel like I need to take a nap after I'm done sitting there and watching a football game simply because I feel it myself. I feel myself engaging in it, feel myself repenting of it and pulling back, you know, all in this time where I'm just supposed to be like, good job, buddy. You pulled a flag, you know. But meanwhile, there's this whole subtext of old Adam and old Eve looking around trying to figure and we all are painfully laughing right now we're all giggling right now because we know that it's true and the reality is that you and i tend to place our identity in the performance of our children such that when they're performing good or when they're performing badly either way we immediately impute reflection on us you know it's like a mom in a in you know with i mean abby's experienced this many times in alone in target with all four kids and they're just erupting and all these wonderful Southern women are walking around looking at this horrible, horrible family. You know, and you can tell that the thoughts, you, you just feel the spotlight on you like, there's a horrible mom right there. And all, all of a sudden, your kid's behavior becomes something that you impute to your identity. I am a horrible person. These people are thinking horrible thoughts. And these things are going on in your heart, right? Identify the thousands of moments that, that seems to happen over the course of a month. And we realize that a lot of times we can be honest with our kids and say, you know what, um, on that car ride home, I just had to jump on all the things you did wrong in that sporting event. And I didn't, I couldn't just, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't just praise my kids when I'm driving home in the car. I can't just say like, good job for XYZ out. I always have to be like, good job for XYZ because that's what psychologists tell me to do before I can get to what I really want to say, which is, you know, you want like five encouragements for every one blah, whatever. You know how big that one negative thought has on our kids, but I can't help but do it, right? Good job. You caught a lot of passes. You didn't drop many. You were pulling flags. You were always lined up. You were listening to your coach, but, right? And it's that big but that they're going to hear more than anything else, right? And it's that moment where really our true cards are coming out, where the identity is being thrown out there, our identity. What if in that moment or shortly after you could say, you know what, I went a little far in, in screaming for you on the field and I went a little far for you on the car ride home. I don't even know that I need to be doing that. I think that the issues I was having with you, son, are actually more about me than you. Because I always wanted to be a better player and I, I wasn't. You know, and so sometimes I see a, a little me running around and I realize that I'm just trying to make myself look better. And I need to apologize to you because I yelled at you and I didn't need to do that. Would you forgive me? There it is. That's a Christian home. Why? Because all of a sudden you're not placing moral perfection uh, as the ideal of a Christian home. You're placing Christ as the ideal because all of a sudden you basically say we're in this sin thing together. Who will deliver us? Look to Jesus as I do. Forgive me. We'll both look to Jesus together. There is our vision. And actually, it's that vision that has the power to produce in us the fruit of good living. You know, that's the irony. Number two, at least for me, uh, we can repent of disciplining our children in anger. James Dobson, right? At least I grew up with him. Uh, I grew up in a home where 
all his parenting materials were, were coming out. And one of the things that my parents were taught that they really did well at was not disciplining in anger. Um, and I'm a failure at that. <laughs> I decided if I don't discipline in anger, I will never discipline at all. Even if I'm seeing it through gritted teeth, right? Like, I just, it's in me. And I don't know if it's my orientation. It's like a particular wiring because of men in my family and our history of tempers and stuff like that. But there's no way around me on a regular basis disciplining without anger, okay? So I can either not discipline, and certainly, God help me, I need to improve on this. But the reality is, I often find myself, and I would encourage you all with this, that this is... This is what this repentance look like. It looks like is going to your kid after you've disciplined them and being able to parse out and say, there's enough sin going around in this whole situation. I'm not, I'm not excusing you in what you did, but I will say in the way I talked to you, the way I screamed at you or yelled at you or pounded my fist on the counter or anything else, I was totally angry and I didn't, and the, I mean, isn't this the irony? Like so often I'm busting, especially one of our kids, for just losing his temper and his cool all the time. And as I'm doing so, I'm losing my cool and my temper. It's it's just the craziest, most guilty feeling of irony when you're like, stop yelling, you know, and you're doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> isn't that just about the worst? And it's totally true. And there's something in that moment to repent of, right? And to say to your kid, you should stop yelling. <laughs> and so should I. And I'm sorry. I disciplined you in anger. And I'll tell you, the son that um, Abby and I struggle with the most, and usually there's a child that's like the, the, the hard kid, um, he's the one that I'm not only finding myself disciplining actively the most, but I'm also apologizing to the most. He's the one that I'm often going to his bedside right before bed saying, I was thinking about it, and I realized that the way I disciplined you was off. It's really not what a a godly father looks like. It's certainly not what your heavenly father looks like. And I'm sorry that you have that model before you. Remember that God's not like that. He's much more gracious than I am and much more kind and his kindness leads us to repentance. And I just want to apologize. I want to tell you, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And that actually in those moments gets closer to what a Christian home looks like. And maybe it is that Christian homes aren't homes that are becoming increasingly more and more perfect. But Christian homes are a place where you can increasingly repent more often. Thirdly, we can repent of how we've chosen our idols over God and them. Um, so often we are treating our kids or dealing with our kids. And this is very similar to, maybe it's a cousin to the identity thing. Um, but we're treating our kids in a way that's really exposing that we, we're worshiping something else other than God. Uh, maybe it is in that our treatment of our kids is our absence because we are um, addicted to our performance in our jobs and we're workaholics. And maybe the thing that we need to do on a regular basis is go to our kids and say, you know, I'm gone a lot from home and if I'm honest, I don't need to but I place so much of my worth and my value in being a good worker in my work environment that I have trouble remembering the priorities that God gives me, which is to love you and to be here for you as well. Or maybe it's that um, I've chosen comfort over time with my kids because my idol 
is comfort. I don't like being uncomfortable or in hard circumstances. And so the way I treat my kids or avoid them or deal with them are manifestations of my love of comfort. You know, um, I think of this with parents, uh, and I'm not there yet, so maybe I'll, I'll be just as sort of cockeyed about it, but parents who are nervous about sending their kids on mission trips or parents who are nervous about their kids' sense of vocation. Um, I heard of some parents who were really concerned about their young sons. Uh, he's off in college now, but their young son's sense of calling to pastoral ministry <laughs> because they thought, that's going to wreck your life, man. You're going to end, end up with more gray hairs. You're not going to have a good salary. Do something else. I mean, you can always be, you can always teach the Bible and do stuff on the other side, but there's this huge sort of idol of comfort that is not being acknowledged in the way that instruction and leadership and wisdom is being imparted to their child in that moment. That's idolatry, you know, and it's leaking into the way that we love our children, you know, and um, it's not to say that stuff's not going to be there because you and I, according to John Calvin, our hearts are idol factories. So maybe the bigger thing to do is to just be honest about it. I am really scared. I'll say, when you came to me and you told me that you were thinking about maybe asking God if being a pastor was what you were supposed to be doing, I got really scared. Why? Because I know that that's hard work. I know for many pastors that means that you're not going to have a lot of money. And I want grandkids, and I want them to live next door from me, and I want this sort of bubble of comfort around my life. Right? And so, being able to admit that I've got this idol in my life, in my heart, Lord have mercy. I think those are the ways that we repent before our children. What are you thinking? What's going on in your head? Either questions you have or inner theologian of uh, glory feeling exposure. Any thoughts or questions? Other other ideas of ways that you've made your, your home a place of repentance? Yes. You know what you've done wrong, um, but they know it already anyway. You know, so I found that it's a it's a really good time with my kids and kind of a bonding time when I yes you know explain to them that I know what I've done and ask them to forgive me because a lot of times it seems like you're the ones who are right in that situation. Yes, um, <laughs> I that's really true. I'll tell you the times. Here's, here's one thought that runs through my head when I'm apologizing to my kid. It's almost giving me an Achilles heel with them in my authority. Like I, My authority now has an Achilles heel because I know I'm not perfect. And that's been why so many parents have said, I can't ever show weakness, can't ever kind of uh, display this model because I need to sort of model perfection so that they can get there, right? And actually, the result is something that's malformative and very unchristian. It's very unchristian to cover over your sin. Why? Because you're not going to Christ. Covering over your sin is, is the game of Adam and Eve. It's why the whole fig leaves came about, right? They sewed those together because they were covering over it. So yeah, it does. And I don't quite know what to do with that feeling every time, but press in and say, I'm, this is not going to be the reason that I don't apologize to you. Somehow we've got to establish, I'm still your authority. You're still supposed to respect me. But at the same time, I'm not going to be perfect and I'm going to I'm going to sort of slog my way through the mud 
of leading you in this. And it's a really good point. Yes. Let's go to Christ together and then model what that looks like. Let's pray. Let's read this verse. Let's let's invite him here because we're both going to be bad. Yep. Yeah, and all of a sudden it becomes two Christians orienting themselves toward their Savior. That's a Christian home, right? It's good. What else? Are you talking about like the husband-wife relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think that's a big one. I mean, so much of... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lord have mercy. Yeah. I think that can be one of the most healthy things for kids to see is a husband apologizing to a wife and the wife forgiving him, and the wife apologizing to the husband, the husband forgiving him, and allowing that to be public in your home rather than private. I mean, some things need to be private. Kids aren't ready for kind of hearing and encountering, so you got to have the development in mind and uh, the darkness there. But yeah, I mean, the gospel starts with that central relationship of husband and wife being able to yield to one another, uh, to know what it's like to finally back down and just say, even though I still feel right about this, I know there are parts of me that are wrong and I just need, I, I want to get it all on the table, you know? And maybe it is at the end of getting it all on the table, I'm going to find I'm wrong, but I'm willing to make myself that vulnerable and that weak appearing for the sake of orienting us toward our Savior, for the sake of getting to Christ, you know, finding Him mighty to save once again. Yeah. Yes. One of the um, things that you said that particularly resonated um, with me is um, I find myself having to apologize to my children for the ways that I have disciplined in anger or frustration. Um, But I I feel like it's a cop-out when I do it, but yet they need to hear it. No, what what you did was still wrong. Right. And I'm not sorry that you had to be disciplined. Right. It had to happen. But right. I am sorry that I lost my temper yep. and thus didn't discipline you the way I would have wanted to. Um, the other thing that I've found um, that's a refrain in our home um, that's hard to say sometimes, but especially, you know, I have, have little boys and they fight. But that God... Yours are the only ones. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Um, but... God called you to be brothers, and therefore you have to learn how to love each other. <laughs> That's right. That's been a refrain a lot. Like, hug him! Hug him! Oh, Give him a hug. Like, you know, be like, no, you will hug him, you will forgive him. You will love each other. Um, but we just say that a lot. And, yes. You know, when I've apologized to my children, and, and my oldest especially, because he is just really clever in some not good ways. But right. Say, you know, like, well, then why do I have to listen to you? And I'll say, because God placed me in authority over you. God called me to be your mom, and I'm right. sorry that I am the That's flawed right. vessel that I am. Blame God. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, God called mommy and daddy to be to be together. And that's, you know, and we just, we say that a lot. That, you know, basically like, sorry, you're stuck with mm-hmm. us, you know. Right. I love that. I love what you said. I think that 
that's kind of why I call it a liturgy, because sometimes we have to do it by rote. And it's not going to be the true sort of, we're going to say it through gritted teeth, right? Uh, but it's formative in and of itself to walk through those patterns. Just like coming every Sunday and engaging our liturgy, whether your mind's in it or not, but hopefully your mind's in it and your heart's in it, but even when it's not, it's still shaping you because it's giving you a repentance-oriented way of relating to God that just starts to drive grooves into your soul. And I think very similarly of the fact that even if you have to hug and like you got your fingers crossed on your back or you're like biting his neck while you do it, like <laughs> you're going to figure out what it feels like and looks like, at least on the outside, to sort of engage in this ritual of confession and repentance, to engage in this ritual. And hopefully, by God's grace, through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, it starts to seep in to our hard hearts. I love that. Yes? There's something I've struggled with that you were talking about earlier, with your identity and the imputation of your children's behavior, good or bad. Yes. And um, I, know, I know he's learning that. Yeah. Um, so it is, in a way, getting back what I would do. <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah. Can you speak to that in terms of our identity and, and the imputation there when it's true? Well, when it's true, what you're getting at is you're becoming God is creating in you by showing you a mirror of yourself in little form. God is working in you. Again, parenting is a work on you. And a, the- a theology of the cross, as Luther said, is calling a thing what it is, right? So in a way, when we see little me, many me out there, God is helping me call me what I am, which is always the first step before I go to Jesus again. I don't know that I have an answer except to say I hate that <laughs> as well. And I um, I do empathize greatly with the, the notion that I am creating the very thing I am disciplining. I am disciplining myself and I'm unsuccessful in the whole process. And it's just unraveling everywhere around me. It's some, I, that's what I lose sleep over every night. More than anything else, I, I'm haunted by these thoughts, especially with my kids. Like That's where I feel uh, in my life. I would tell this to men that I have Bible studies with and guys I meet one-on-one with. The, the area where I feel like an acute failure all the time is as a father. Even on the good days, I think I could have spent more, could have not sort of stared at my phone or, you know, I could have done something different. There's always that. And it always hits me when my head hits the pillow and your mind starts reviewing the day. Um, and I'm not answering your question. Um, but I do know that this mirror allows us to call it what it is, which always, interestingly enough, if you're a Christian, drives you back to Jesus for mercy, which is right where he wants you. He wants you to be grabbing on to that wood looking up at his bleeding hands and side, crying out for mercy. And when you do that, he's mighty to save because we're all the woman caught in adultery. We all are. And it's from that point that we really begin and end parenting and all our relationships for that matter by the mercy and grace of Jesus. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.